scripture reading today is it's 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verses 9 through 17. God is faithful by whom you are called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that by those of Cleo's household, that, you, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I was that I baptized none of you except Cephas and Gaudas. Least anyone say that I have baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephens. Besides, I besides I do not know whether I have baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Good morning. It's good to be together this morning where we've been able to spend time in worship to our God, we are thankful that for the songs that we've been led in, that we have been able to think about and reflect on the praiseworthiness of God and His glory and the sacrifice of Jesus that we've been able to partake a part in as we have Lord's death and the Lord's Supper. And we are so grateful for we now have to be able to spend time in studying the Word of God together this morning. I invite you to be taking out your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to try to see if I can rearrange this a little bit to where we don't get as much feedback. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we will be beginning our our study this morning and taking some thoughts from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 9 in particular. Perhaps you'll remember last month whenever uh, we are continuing our series on the yearly theme of fellowship. We looked at the idea, the, the notion that God is faithful. And this morning we want to build on that idea that God is faithful. That means, and as Paul says in verse Nine, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Last week or last uh, month, we, what we looked at was uh, this idea that God is faithful, and God's faithfulness is the basis; it's the foundation of our fellowship with Jesus Christ. His, and God's faithfulness is expressed through His calling us through the Gospel, that the Gospel has called us and invites us to come and participate with God, and that we have been called by God. God wants us to be saved, and He has to save us. God's faithfulness is seen in our fight against temptation, that God is not going to leave us on our own, but He is faithful, He is there, He provides a way of escape, 
and that he is going to under he knows that he's not going to give us something that we cannot handle. Also, in the last point that we made last month was that his faithfulness is the assurance in the hope that we have of eternal life. That God is going to confirm us until the end. Those who are faithfully following Him, God is faithful to help us. And so God's faithfulness, He has granted us a precious gift in fellowship that Paul makes very clear that we have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ, His Son. It's a wonderful blessing. It's a wonderful gift that God has provided us with through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And fellowship is one of those words sometimes I would describe as sometimes a church word that church and we use it in a, in a particular way, maybe a more nuanced way than what we might use uh, just if we were at, out with someone and visiting with them, we might use fellowship in a slightly different way there in versus what we would mean here in a church service. But as what we mean this morning by fellowship, properly defined, is joint participation. It's a partnership in which we are participating together with others. And the thought that through the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, that we become partners with God and His Son, that is something that is truly special. It's humble, amazing. And this morning, think about that idea a little deeper this morning. What does that mean for us? If we're going to have fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ in particular, what does that mean? Well, I think there's a couple of things that we need to just stop and appreciate and recognize that Paul is telling us here that God is faithful through whom we have been called into fellowship with His Son. And Jesus Christ is identified as God's Son. And you think about your son, and if you're a father, and if you have a son or a daughter, if you have children, then you have a special and a unique relationship with them. And you may not appreciate someone else trying to kind of butt into that relationship because that's your son or that's your child. Right? Then it's a unique relationship that you have with your child that no one else has. But God, He has invited us to participate in a unique relationship with His Son. And in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 15, in John chapter 15, and in verse 9, Notice here how Jesus, as He is discussing some things with His apostles on the night that He is betrayed, in John chapter 15 and in verse 9, He says, Just as the Father has loved Me, I also have loved you. Abide in My love. That this is what I think Jesus is trying to communicate here to His apostles, that He is going to love His apostles and those who would follow after Him but he says that the reason I do that is because God has loved me. I think that's first what we need to appreciate about what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, that whenever he calls Jesus the Son of God, His Son, he is implying all of that relationship that is there, that God 
loves Jesus. And the first thing that I think we need to understand about fellowship is that it's not to be treated lightly. It's not something that we just put on the back burner and we just use it around to express something that, and we use it in a careless way. It's not something that is a casual word. It's not meaningless. Fellowship is a word that denotes an extremely important relationship that we are privileged to be a part of because God loves Jesus His Son. And He has called us into fellowship with the Son that God loves. That's an important and a very humbling thought. And then secondly, we need to be thinking very closely about what Paul says, that our fellowship is with Jesus Christ. And so we know that Jesus is God's Son. The Son that God loves. But who is Jesus? You could say that He's Jesus of Nazareth. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been looking at how He is the Messiah. And he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and expectations of the Savior of the world. And that is a, a, a true answer. But I want us to look here very closely at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about Jesus. Because I think he is emphasizing something that is extremely important for us to stop and just recognize about Jesus. And that is, Jesus is our Lord. That is something that Paul is identifying Jesus with in a very unique sense here in this chapter. He uses it five times in just a very short uh, space. In chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul says to the church of God, which is at Corinth, who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. He again goes on in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again in verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 10, now I exhort you brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. On my account, that's five times in just a very short amount of space, and it gets in particular verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. In those verses in a row, Paul is using this idea that we are identifying Jesus as our Lord, that He is a King. That is the idea that Paul is trying to communicate to us. Jesus is King. And in the first century, under the Roman Empire, in the city of Corinth, a very Greek, Gentile-oriented city, a city under the Roman Empire, hearing that message that Jesus is your Lord, that Jesus is the King, that is a very subtle way a jab at the Roman Empire, isn't it? That if Jesus is your King, Caesar is not your, your King. Or at least he's not your primary King. He's not the one that you give 
ultimate and final allegiance to. Because our primary allegiance must be to King Jesus. Not to any worldly empire or any worldly system of government. Since Jesus is King, that means that it is our duty to follow Him. And that is in a very basic way, what the gospel is really all about. It's about the kingship of Jesus Christ and the implications that would follow along with that. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, you remember that gospel sermon that Peter, standing along with the eleven apostles, that they were all proclaiming Jesus and His death, burial and the resurrection of Jesus, and how Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies that David had made and the promise that God had made with David that he would sit one of his heirs on the throne. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 29, Peter says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So if you think this, these scriptures were talking about David, he says we could go to the grave and we could check it out if we wanted to, if we needed that proof that He's still there. Jesus is not. He says in verse 32 that it's Jesus God raised up to which we are all witnesses. And in verse 33, there's a very important word. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus who died and was buried and was raised He has now ascended to the right hand of God and He has been exalted to a heavenly position, a very high position. He wasn't voted in. He was exalted by God to take the right hand of God, to sit on the throne. And that's why in verse 36, Peter concludes with these words, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. When we're talking about the Gospel and the proclamation of the Gospel, it is an affirmation, it's a belief that Jesus is our Lord, that He is our King, and that He is the one that we listen to. He is the one that we give our ultimate allegiance to, and He is the one that we live for. And whenever we put everything in our life through that filter, when we think about everything through that lens that Jesus is our Lord and our King, then it helps us understand something about how we are to live. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and in verse 1, he's writing to several different churches in various parts of Asia Minor and the Roman Empire. And he says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. You might be thinking, well, yeah, they're aliens because they might have been they might be Jews who have left and are living in various parts of the Roman Empire. I don't think that's what Paul means at all. Or Peter, rather. I think he's acknowledging Christians 
as aliens. Because he goes on in chapter 2. In chapter 2 and in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So Peter is using this idea of being a sojourner, an alien, someone who does not have their homeland yet. He's, he's using it in a very special and a very spiritual and nuanced way that this is something about how you are to perceive your relationship with the world. You are to see that you are not part of this world. This is not your home. Sometimes we might sing that song. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Because we are sojourners. This place is just temporary. This is just a very temporary place that we are going to be. And because of that, we, there's a way in which we are to live. We are to wage war against the, the, the lusts of the flesh. And Satan. We, don't, we all know that life is short. We don't know when we will be called to go to our true home. There is an important recognition that we have to make whenever we make the confession that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He is our Lord and our Savior. When we are willing to make that confession before we are baptized in water, we made that confession. That means that we are giving our allegiance to Jesus the King. And that means that we are going to live in a different way. That we're not going to give in to the lust of the flesh. That we are going to fight that. The way that the world wants us to live, we're going to resist that. And that's why in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 33, Jesus tells us, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first God's kingdom. That means that the kingdom of God is supposed to be our first priority. Everything else takes second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth place to go on down the list. But our primary allegiance, our first citizenship is with God in heaven. That's why Paul would say in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, in Philippians chapter 3 and in verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That our citizenship is not here. That's something that we need to understand that when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord when we live in a way that would bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are acknowledging that our 
Our home is no longer here. Our allegiances are no longer here. Our primary allegiance is to God and the kingdom of God. That's challenging for us, though, isn't it? It's hard. Because we live here. We have relationships here. We have things that we enjoy doing right here where we live. But because of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice... And when we honor Jesus as King and as our Lord, and we've been called into fellowship with Him, we have been called to take part in His kingdom. That's fellowship. Peter, as he would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 9, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Stop and think about that phrase there. A royal priesthood. Jesus is King, but we are part of the royal family. That is fellowship. Jesus Christ has called us to become full participants and to be in fellowship with Him in His kingdom. That's why He goes on to say that we are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a peculiar people, an idea that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. In the book of Second Peter or Second Timothy, in Second Timothy chapter two, in Second Timothy chapter two and verse eleven, notice what Paul says here in Second Timothy chapter two and in verse eleven, the apostle Paul would say, "It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him." The Lordship of Jesus Christ needs to be first in our life because we are invited to participate in His kingdom. What a humbling thought that we are called into fellowship with the King, that we are part of a royal priesthood. We are part of the family of Jesus Christ. So fellowship with Jesus Christ means first and foremost that we are going to give honor and allegiance to King Jesus. The second point that comes with fellowship with Jesus Christ and what that means for us is that we are going to seek unity with fellow believers. That's what Paul begins to deal with in the book of 1 Corinthians. In that first chapter, the remaining part of that chapter where he says in verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And he goes on to 
talk about how he has heard about all these divisions and how people are saying, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos, I am Cephas. Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? No, that's absurd. Has Christ been divided? No. That's how it that's not how it ought to be. And so when we give honor to King Jesus and we live with the purpose of seeking God's kingdom as first and foremost in our life, that means that we are going to seek unity with fellow believers. That we're going to try to be unified with everyone else. Because we all have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And if you have fellowship with Jesus Christ, and I have fellowship with Jesus Christ, then we need to be working together. That's another extremely important part of fellowship. And even though that the church at Corinth had severe disagreements, Paul is encouraging the people to speak the same thing, to be of the same mind, to have the same purpose. And it is extremely sad when we are all citizens of the same kingdom, when we all claim to give our allegiance to King Jesus, and yet there are internal divisions and there's strife that would be equivalent of a civil war. Or at least an internal cold war. That would be a shame to the body of Christ. That is not what... Jesus wants for His kingdom. That's why Paul would go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to talk about the benefits of the kingdom and the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in verse 20, but now there are many members but one body. While we might all have, we have individual members, we are one body. And unity recognizes the need for everybody. Unity recognizes that we all have some value and some benefit to contribute. And we are all part of the same body. We are one body. And he goes on in verse 21, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Contrary to the idea of some who say, I have no need of you. Paul's saying that, can you imagine being part of a a local congregation where people thought, we don't need you? Can you imagine where someone would dare say that to someone? We don't need you here. We don't need you to be a part of us. That cannot come into our thoughts and our hearts if we're going to have the unity that God wants us to have. We need to fight the urge to look down upon those who do very little for the Lord's kingdom. He He tells us that very thing in verse 22. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Now that's kind of an odd idea, isn't it? That you think you need, from the top down, you need strong leadership, but Paul's saying it's from the bottom up. That's how we need to think of the body. That we need to look for those who are weaker 
and help them because they have a necessary part in the body. He says in verse 23, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Paul, he knew, I believe, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the problem that churches could easily fall into. He was probably seeing it right here. The power struggle. Maybe between the rich and the poor, or maybe those who had a lot of knowledge and wisdom versus those who were immature in their following Christ. And he's saying those are the fault lines of the church that could easily cause division. Or whenever people are humble and meek, he says that's where the real power is. But those who are proud and those who think they know everything, they are going to be the ones who fight against those who are humble. Those are some of the fault lines that you might see in a congregation. And we don't need to fight those things. We need to embrace and we need to try to build each other up. We need to encourage each other. We don't fight against each other. We don't say, well, I don't need you. I can cut you off and be just fine. Imagine if your foot started hurting and you just say, well, I'm going to cut it off and that's it, you know. That doesn't help. We have to learn to give honor to those who may deserve less honor. That's a very challenging thought. It's challenging for me to think about. But when we are unified as the church and the body of our Lord Jesus, then we are reminded that we are not only individually having fellowship with Jesus, but as a collective body we have fellowship with Christ. We have become a community of believers who are all connected and bound with Jesus. Look at the words sometime to bless be the time. That's the idea that I think we need to acknowledge here as Paul is trying to help us understand the importance of unity in the body of Christ and how it relates to our fellowship with Jesus, our Lord. And then finally this morning, we need to grow in grace. Something that Paul recognizes in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians is that these people had been touched by God's grace. He says in verse 3, Paul does, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He goes on in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you are enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. I think Paul has in mind here the the miraculous abilities in the speaking in tongues, the ability to prophesy, the knowledge that we might refer to the ability to interpret tongues or to provide prophecy and the proper interpretation of what was being revealed, those kinds of things. While we understand that we no longer have those miraculous spiritual gifts in the church today, there is a broader principle at play that the testimony and the truth and the preaching of Jesus Christ ought to enrich our lives. It ought to shape us, change us, and cause us to grow. Fellowship with Jesus Christ ought to be a life-changing and a life-enriching relationship. Fellowship with Jesus Christ will not, it will not allow us to stay the same. I want to repeat that. Our fellowship with Jesus Christ will not allow us to remain the same. Peter, at the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, the very last verse in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I think we all can pretty well understand what it means to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? But have you ever just stopped and given some consideration about what it means to grow in grace? That's a little bit more challenging, isn't it? But we ought to grow in grace. I think that's why Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we need to be adding certain things to our faith that our faith, it cannot stay the same. Our faith needs to be adding qualities and we need to be developing, we need to be growing, we need to be changing for the better each and every day. We ought to grow in grace. I can't help but be reminded of what the Apostle Paul would say in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6. In Romans the 6th chapter, Paul begins that chapter in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase or that grace may abound? Certainly not, he says. God forbid. But there is still something to this idea that grace should abound or grace should increase. But how is that going to happen? Well, it's not going to happen through continuing a life of sin. Paul goes on in chapter uh, chapter 6, I think to help us understand a little bit more in how grace abounds in our life, how grace is manifested in our life. It's not going to be found when we sin. It's going to be when we change our life and we commit our life to obedience. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? 
In verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. We grow in grace when we have a life that's committed to following God. When we enslave ourselves to God. When God becomes our master. When we give our whole heart and everything, every fiber of our being, when we give it our all to God, grace may then abound and increase. But if we quit growing, if we quit growing, if we ever become stagnant, we will begin to digress. One last passage for our consideration this morning. I appreciate your good thoughts and your good attention this morning. In Hebrews chapter 5, in Hebrews chapter 5, and in verse 12, Notice what the Hebrew writer says. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and have come to need milk and not solid food. What a sad predicament that the Hebrews were in. And you might think, well, they had a problem. They weren't growing. They didn't have enough teachers in the church. That was a problem. The Hebrew writer is acknowledging. You ought to be teachers. And now, he's saying, you know, you're not wise. You're not strong. Because it's the strong who need meat. It's the weak who need milk. So, there's certainly a problem there. Have you ever noticed there in verse 12 what he says? That you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You ought to be here, but now I have to go back and lay a, a foundation again. Because whenever you quit using when you quit using your knowledge, when you are not exercising your abilities and your talents, when you're not trying to grow and when you're not trying to develop, is that you need to be retaught. It's a very sad reality. And that's why we are admonished to grow in grace. Grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we are committed to growing in our knowledge and understanding of God's Word, growing in obedience and growing in grace, and we are publicly demonstrating our faith and our fellowship with Jesus Christ. 
when the church is unified, when we rely upon the strengths of each other, then the body of Christ is living out our collective fellowship with Jesus Christ. Our fellowship with Jesus has called us to give honor and allegiance to His Lordship and His kingdom. We are citizens of that kingdom. But we also become an active part of the royal household and family with Jesus. Fellowship. Fellowship with God's Son, Jesus Christ, is a wonderful blessing and a privilege that is given to God's children. This morning you have an opportunity to come to Christ, to become a part of the family of God. Are you living in fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ? We certainly want you to. And if you need to be added to the family of God, we encourage you to come to have your sins washed away and to be baptized. Jesus Christ gave His life for you so that you could have the hope of eternal life. He went to the cross so that we could live and have fellowship with Him. Maybe it is that you are a child of God, but you've not been living as you ought to. You've not been living in a unified way with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you've not been seeking to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to help you. We want to pray with you and pray for you. If you have any sin in your life that needs to be corrected, we would encourage you to make correction of that this morning before it's eternally too late. If we can help you in any way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?